Hi, welcome to the Cordam podcast. This episode is about the limitations of object-oriented programming. In about two weeks, I'm going to be presenting at DCONF, the Deep Programming Language Conference. My talk is going to be about my experience programming in D using an approach that tries to improve upon the mainstream object-oriented paradigm. I didn't come up with this approach all at once, or just by myself for that matter. What happened is that I had several insights based on things I've read and thought about, and those insights gradually led me towards the approach that I'll be presenting at the conference. What I wanted to do today was revisit one of those insights. Let me give you some context. In early 2016, my friend Ali asked me if I would be willing to present something for the local Silicon Valley D meetup. I said sure, but I warned him that it was probably just going to be something very short since I wouldn't have much time to prepare material. Well, it wasn't short. I decided to talk about something I had been thinking about, anemic domain models. I'll explain what that means. So, basically, the idea of object-oriented programming is that you combine the data and the methods that operate upon it. That's what objects are, right? Instead of just having naked data, you hide the data inside objects. If you want to do something with that data, you don't just do it directly from outside the object. Instead, you ask the object to do it. You send a message to the object saying what you want it to do, and the object is supposed to figure out what code should actually run, all without exposing the internal data. We say that the data is encapsulated. Now, there's this catchphrase that you can write Fortran in any language. The same applies to object-oriented programming. Sometimes people will write code that, on the surface, looks object-oriented, but it really isn't. That's where anemic domain models enter the picture. A domain model is basically a representation of the problem you want to solve. And in object-oriented programming, you are supposed to use objects to represent that model. So if your problem is about racing cars, then you might have objects like car and wheel and engine. So far, so good. What sometimes happens, though, is that programmers will write Fortran in Java, so to speak. So those programmers will indeed have car classes and engine classes and so on, but it won't actually be object-oriented. That's because when you actually look closely, you'll notice that the engine class doesn't really do much. It will store the values for the engine RPM and the fuel type and the compression ratio. But if you actually want to do something, then you have to send a request to an engine simulator object. This is something that really bugs the object-oriented zealots. On the surface, you have the OOP trappings. You don't directly access the engine RPM value. Oh no, you have accessor methods. So if you want to change the representation of the engine RPM, then you can. Or how you store it. Your engine simulator doesn't really directly change your engine RPM. It politely asks the engine, for it to change the value. But this isn't really fooling anyone. The object-oriented programming zealots will see right through that ruse and will hate you for it. They will scream, Oh, you are just trying to disguise your procedural style in OOP clothes. 
Yeah, indeed. Okay, so let's step back a little bit, okay? Why does this matter? Why are those people so worked up about this? And does it really matter? These are very interesting questions. In fact, we can ask even more interesting questions. For instance, what exactly is the difference between fake OOP and true OOP? Is it something that is always easy to recognize or is it something more nebulous? Is fake OOP just as bad as procedural or is it a little bit better? In fact, why are we assuming procedural is bad? And if we do assume that, how much better is OOP than procedural? Does it depend on the project size, on what kind of program it is? Perhaps a more enlightening question is this one. Let's assume, for the sake of the argument, that OOP is better than procedural. Can we improve the procedural style to make it as good as OOP? Do those improvements necessarily make it more object-oriented? Or are there ways to reap the benefits that object orientation is supposed to bring, but in a completely different way, a way that doesn't look like OOP? Maybe that way has some different trade-offs. What are those trade-offs? What criteria do we use to choose between the different paradigms? Is it just personal preference? Or can we be a bit more objective? Well, let's first examine more closely what the object-oriented solution should look like. OP is about programming with objects. The question then is, what objects should you program? One way that I've seen this taught is with the nouns and verbs approach. For instance, if your domain is about animals, then you might have classes like animal and dog and cat. They will teach you that both dog and cat inherit from animal. Animals can do things like run and emit sounds, so your animals will have polymorphic methods for running and vocalizing. You call make sound on an animal object, and it might say woof if it's a dog and meow if it's a cat. So the nouns in the domain are the classes and the verbs are the methods. That's like the OOP for dummies approach. One thing the nouns and verbs approach doesn't focus much on is the relationship between objects. So, for example, we want the dog to run. Maybe we want it to run after the mailman. Noun, dog. Verb, run. We're missing something. So you have more sophisticated tools like CRC cards. That's a class responsibility collaboration card. The class and responsibility are basically the nouns and verbs. But now you also have the collaborators. That's the mailman. Yeah, in the object-oriented world, the dog collaborates with the mailman to run after him. In any case, what you always conclude is that the dog runs. That's a responsibility the dog has. It knows how to run. In fact, that's part of the beauty of OOP. Your dog objects will run one way, while your rabbit objects will run another way, probably by hopping around. What you don't see is a dog runner class. Now, the question is, why not? Can't a dog collaborate with a dog runner to perform its running? Maybe he's a busy CEO dog and wants to delegate his responsibilities, like a good boss. I mean, it sounds kind of silly at first class, 
but it also makes some sense when you think about it more carefully. Maybe the way the dog runs after the mailman is through the help of a target tracker object. Maybe the way the rabbit runs is by collaborating with an object bouncer class. That's just how it hops around. Isn't that kind of object-oriented too? I think this is an interesting part of our inquiry. In my experience, many texts that teach us how to program in an object-oriented way, they kind of hint that it should be the dog itself that knows how to run, but they never really say it. They never say that you can't have a dog runner class. They just say the dog has a run method. Maybe that's not so much the case in more advanced books about good object-oriented design and things like that. But in material that just teaches the basics of OOP, for instance, in the context of teaching a programming language, I think that's the case. They never say it. But then there is a book which basically is all about how you can't do it. That book is called Domain Driven Design by Eric Evans. This is a large book, like uh, 500 pages long. So if you ask someone what the book is about, they aren't going to say it's about how you can't have a dog runner class. But, well, it kind of is. For our purposes, here's what you need to know about Domain Driven Design. Not just the book, the philosophy. The core idea is that your code should reflect the domain model. So you already know that if your domain is the jungle, you are going to have things like a lion class and a zebra class. Those are called entities in domain-driven design. Those objects live in the domain layer. As it says on the book, they are responsible for representing concepts of the business, information about the business situation, and business rules. But this design approach also allows other kinds of objects. So, for example, you also have value objects and factories and aggregates and things like that. But the entities, the things that live in the domain layer, those are the really important ones. The other types of objects and other layers have lesser roles. Here's what Evan says about the application layer, which is basically a service layer. This layer is kept thin. It does not contain business rules or knowledge, but only coordinates tasks and delegates work to collaborations of domain objects in the next layer down. So there you have it. If your domain knowledge says that cheetahs run fast, you must encode that knowledge in the domain entity, the cheetah class. Maybe your Cheetah class can ask for help and use a fast runner class to implement its running. I don't know if Evans would be against that. But it all must start with the Cheetah. It's the Cheetah that knows how it should run. It's not the fast runner that knows that the Cheetah runs fast. That is the rich domain model. The classes that model the domain are rich, full of functionality. They actually know how to do stuff, how things are supposed to work. Then, there is the fake OOP version. In the fake version, you also have the domain objects, but they don't really do anything. They have the data needed to model the domain, but the behaviors are implemented elsewhere. That's what we call an anemic domain model. If you believe in object-oriented programming, and especially if you believe in domain-driven design, then you really don't want anything to do with anemic domain models. They are just fundamentally opposed to what object orientation is about. 
They are an anti-pattern, something you shouldn't do. And that's what I had been thinking about. I had read an article defending anemic domain models, and I totally agreed. So for my D-Meta presentation, I took the base idea of the article and I extended it with my own examples and arguments. I argued that not only were anemic domain models not an anti-pattern, they actually could be an excellent choice in the context of the deep programming language. My reasoning was this. In the rich domain model, all of the domain rules are implemented in the domain layer using domain entities in the usual object-oriented way. There are no service layers that implement domain concerns, or if there are, they are extremely thin. That means that the domain entities are capable of completely enforcing their invariants, which is an important point of domain-driven design and object-oriented design in general, for that matter. Now, picture the anemic domain models. The domain entities, they have few or no behaviors. That means that they can't validate that their data conforms to the business rules, the rules of the domain model. Instead, the business logic is implemented in a domain service layer. If you are used to the object-oriented approach, at first glance, this might seem less convenient, less organized, maybe even more error-prone. But I think there are several advantages to this approach. So I made two main arguments in favor of anemic domain models. One argument is based on distinguishing between local and non-local invariants. In the rich domain model, each domain class knows the invariants that its domain entity is supposed to maintain. So the engine knows that its RPM should never go above a certain value. But many things we want to do, they don't just change a single entity, they change multiple entities. So how can we make sure that all of those entities change in a compatible way? That is, there are invariants that cut across domain entities, non-local invariants, perhaps even global invariants. How do we maintain the invariants across entities? In the anemic domain model approach, we use domain service classes. Each domain service class knows some set of related domain rules, even if those rules cut across multiple entities. So they are a good place to enforce non-local invariants. If this is a little abstract, don't worry, I'll give you an example in a short while. The second argument is somewhat related to the first argument. I didn't change it much from the original article. The argument is this. Not only are anemic domain models not an anti-pattern, they are actually a solid design. Solid, that's an acronym. It stands for five principles. The S is the single responsibility principle. The O is the open-closed principle. The L is the Liskov substitution principle. The I, the interface segregation principle and the D, the dependency inversion principle. The one we care about here is the single responsibility principle. Here's how Wikipedia explains it. Every module or class should have responsibility over a single part of the functionality provided by the software, and that responsibility should be entirely encapsulated by the class. All its services should be narrowly aligned with that responsibility. This is a little vague, so here's a definition by Robert C. Martin that I think is easier to understand. He just says, 
a class should have only one reason to change. That's it. That's because if the class only does one thing, we won't have to change its code if some other unrelated piece of code changes. Pretty straightforward, right? So the argument is this. Unlike the rich domain models, the anemic domain models actually respect the single responsibility principle. Why is this true? Because in the anemic approach, the domain entities care much less about other entities. In the rich approach, it was the dog itself that ran after the mailman. So the dog class might have to change if we want to change things that relate to running or the mailman. In the anemic approach, the dog class only has to change if we change things related to the dog itself. The dog can still enforce some local invariants, like it always has four legs, but it won't enforce invariants across entities. That's the job of the domain service classes. In the domain service layer, you can have a class that tells you that the distance between the dog and the mailman makes sense. That's not a property of the dog, and it's not a property of the mailman. It's a relationship between them. And you can have a class whose single responsibility is checking that the relationships between dogs and mailmen are within the expected values. Those aren't the examples I actually used in my meetup presentation. The example I used was how to design a game of Monopoly. What happened is that, sometime earlier, I had read a blog post by Reginald Braithwaite called My Favorite Interview Question. He talks about how in a job interview, they asked him this question. How might you design a program that lets people play Monopoly with each other over the internet? And it's a very interesting question that allows you to explore a lot of interesting stuff. So at the time, when I was thinking about program design trade-offs, I kept thinking about that example how those trade-offs would apply to designing a game of Monopoly. You probably know the game of Monopoly, but if you don't, it doesn't really matter. In the object-oriented approach, you would have nouns like game and board and player and property and so on. In terms of verbs, you would have things that happen in the game, like buying a property, paying rent, and rolling the dice. So the example I gave was this one. How do you buy a property? I had a presentation slide that tried to show the rich domain model solution. It had the classes player and property. The player class has attributes like how much money he has and which property he owns. The property class has attributes like what's the property called, how much does it cost, and who owns it. I think the usual way people would describe buying a property is that the player buys the property, so the player class has two methods. One is can buy property, which checks things like can he afford to pay for the property. The other is the actual buy property method, where he pays for the property. This is consistent with the domain-driven design approach. The player buys the property and checks the invariance, like can he afford it and is it actually for sale. But let me just tell you a little bit more about that blog post, my favorite interview question. One of the reasons I liked it so much is that it also pretty much asked the same questions we are asking here. There's one part of that article that asks, where do the rules live? And it says, in a noun-oriented design, the rules are smooshed and smeared across the design. 
because every single object is responsible for knowing everything about everything that it can do. All the verbs are glued to the nouns as methods. Right, that's basically a description of the rich domain model approach. The article even gives an example. It asks a more specific question. If a player owns Baltic Avenue, can the player add a house to it? To answer that, we have to be able to know a lot of stuff like, can the player afford it? Is there a house in the bank? Is it the player's turn? Does the property already have four houses? Is Baltic Avenue mortgaged? What if Mediterranean Avenue, a property in the same group, is mortgaged? What if Baltic Avenue has one house, but Mediterranean Avenue has none? Now, the reason the blog post really connects with our rich versus anemic debate is that it asks where do those rules live? For instance, you can only add a house to a property if there are still houses available in the bank. So where does that rule live? In the bank object? Remember, it's the player that buys the house. The player is supposed to check and respect the invariance for the things it does. So we had a method in the player class that checked if the player could buy the property. But now the player class has to know a lot of things that don't really concern the player itself. We can put that rule in the bank object, but the player still has to know that it should check with the bank first. So you see, there are a lot of reasons why we might have to change the code of the player class. In the typical rich domain model approach, the player class doesn't have a single responsibility. It doesn't respect the solid principles. In my slides, I presented the anemic domain model alternative with two service classes. I had a house purchase validator class and a house buying action class. These classes had a single responsibility. The buy house class implemented the action interface and its perform method actually implemented the mechanics of buying the house, like paying for it. But before it did so, it called the validator object to check that the action could actually be executed. By the way, in this example, I used classes because I wanted to maintain the terminology of service objects. But in many cases, all of this could be implemented in terms of plain functions. A question you might want to ask is if the services need to exist across several steps, or if it's something you create just for a single step and then immediately destroy it. Okay, I don't know how convincing you find these examples. I think it's very telling that you encounter different authors basically making the same argument, even if they use different terminology and focus on different details. Since I gave this meetup presentation, I've come across many more examples that provide evidence in favor of the anemic domain model approach. By the way, if you check out the slides for my presentation, I'll provide a link in the show notes, you'll see that I had another example. I was worried that my arguments would be seen as a straw man, so I included another example that I felt was better vetted. It's called the bowling game kata because a lot of people have solved that kata, like multiple times, we can actually look at their implementations and evaluate how rich they are and how well they respect the single responsibility principle and things like that. I explored that example in much more detail. 
It even shows an example of what I was talking about in terms of classes versus functions. In the anemic design, I have a scoring service that is actually just a plain function. It's a generic function that works with any object that implements the score sheet interface, and it's implemented in terms of ranges and algorithms, so it has a very mathematical structure. That's actually one of the points I wanted to make for the presentation, because that was a D meetup. Using D language features with the anemic approach, it was very easy to create fairly reusable domain services, which is kind of ironic, right? People used to promise that object-oriented programming would allow reusability, but here it's the approach that's not quite object-oriented that delivers better reusability. Okay, what does all of this mean then? On the surface, the presentation was about rich versus anemic domain models. But the truth is that the rich approach is fundamentally just the standard object-oriented approach. The anemic approach is a much more procedural or functional approach, even if you use classes and some parts of the design look like the traditional OOP style. So if you agree with my examples and arguments, that means that, at least sometimes, the object-oriented approach is not the right choice. Which is very interesting, because then we come back to the kinds of questions I asked earlier. Like, if object-oriented programming is not always the right choice, when is it the right choice? Can we use objective criteria to determine that? Are there other approaches that deliver the advantages of OOP without the disadvantages? What are those other approaches? Well, those are questions for another episode. Thank you for listening.